A wonderful good morning, good afternoon or good night to everyone. My name is Chris Marquardt. This is Curiously Polar, episode 90. And with me, as usual, is Henry. Henry, how are you doing? I am fantastic. How about you? <laughs> doing good. So what, what people might not, uh, not know is that we are now as far apart from each other as we've ever been. Because I am here in Germany and you have spent some time on a ship in Antarctica. Exactly, that's right. I'm currently in Ushuaia, which is like um, the self-claimed end of the world, um, the southernmost city in uh, Argentina. Argentina, And um, yeah, just having a break off from my ships for roughly a week and then heading back down again. Ushuaia, Terra del Fuego. Exactly. Fireland. Land of fire. It's a beautiful beautiful spot, by the way. A really beautiful place to discover and explore um, off Antarctica. It's extremely green. It's, it's summer down here and um, everything is green. You have plenty of trees, um, amazing wildlife. It's just really beautiful. The, the people here are super friendly. It's, it's really a pleasure to um, spend the week off the ships here in that area and just explore a little bit on my own. That's, that's pretty amazing. And it's the closest place to the Antarctic. To it the is. The Antarctic Peninsula. Yes, it's a place where uh, the vast majority of um, trips are starting from. So we have a port town here with a deep sea port where all the expedition ships are um, landing and just embarking their new passengers and then heading down to. Uh, through the um, Drake Passage to the peninsula. Very cool. So, uh, what have you brought us for this episode? I've brought us um, a fantastic guest, um, a lady I met on uh, the Ocean Diamond, the ship I served in the last two months. And um, Emma is an amazing character. She is as international as one can be. Um, she hails from, from uh, Brazil with German roots. So her first language she actually learned was German, but now she <laughs> does not know much German any longer <laughs> because then later uh, Portuguese came into life and now English is her kind of her first language. She has an incredible career in academia. So she studied um, up to PhD in um, biology and microbiology uh, eventually. And that brought her to the most amazing places in Antarctica. And Emma is probably the person I personally know that uh, traveled to the most diverse places in Antarctica. And that's pretty amazing um, when you see how condensated the expedition cruises are. We are mainly um, traveling around the Antarctic Peninsula, um, a, a very uh, limited space, of course, time-wise limited. And Emma has just much more experience on the continent itself, not only in the peninsula, but even on, on, on the East Antarctic Ice Sheet, West Antarctic Ice Sheet, um, Ross Island, Dry Valleys. It's just amazing um, the, the expertise she gained in those years and the experiences. And that's what she's sharing with us. So my name is Emma, uh, complete name Emmanuel Kuhn. Everybody knows me as Emma Kuhn. I'm a Brazilian-German family, born in Brazil. Um, my background is in biology, and 
I got in love with microbial life when I was 13 years old and that's the time that I decided to become a biologist. And then by that I started to focus in studying biology and then I went to an undergrad in biology degree as a molecular biology bachelor and also education bachelor and then I went for um, a master's in biotechnology and a PhD in biochemistry and molecular biology and then a postdoc in oceanography and always studying um, microbial life in extreme environments. And that's the key words in extreme environments. What's extreme environments for you? Extreme environments is all these environments that are not normal. <laughs> okay, in I, have quotes, to, in I, have to I have to explain you. <laughs> exactly. You just <laughs> signed the quote the, with your hands. The, yeah, and then the, the normal will be like where you actually find most of life, especially mammals, birds, and evolved uh, plants which are the ones that actually, um, we used to say in biology, they're most evolved, you can say like that. Um, they're more complex lives. And uh, which is gonna be like a, a temperature, average temperature of 20 or even like between 15 and 30 or a neutral pH or uh, salinity, ocean salinity, 3.5% salinity, if you go for percents, 35 ppt. Um, what else? Yeah, so this kind of the average of normal where you find most of life existing. And then you go for extreme environments, you're going to talk about um, higher temperatures, lower temperatures, high salinities, uh, alkaline environments and places that you actually have um, you do still have a quite of a diverse type of life living there but they're starting to get most specialized in living in kind of this environment and pretty much you can consider like comparing about whatever will be extreme for human beings or for mammals in general kind of mammals and birds the most, most evolved ones so Let's take one step back. You yeah. decided you want to be a biologist at the age of 13. That's kind of not the norm. Usually in our age, what, what do regular or standard um, profession opportunities look like? It's probably not biologist. What, what uh, drove you to that? What made you choose that? When I was... Well, I always was very... I, I always consider myself like very connected to nature like um, I have a mom that is my and I was like first also like I was born in a kind of a like I, I say that all the time but a kind of European family more related and regardless like to how important is education and knowledge and my dad is a math and physics teacher my mom is a musician so it's like all of coming everywhere from rationality to emotions and I always got a very contact um, in contact with nature and looking into details and observing nature and also understanding from both of science of my education and my parents and uh, when I was 13 years old I was reading a kind of these kind of magazines for teenagers 
about science, science magazines for teenagers in Brazil. And uh, there was one of the articles was about the flesh eater bacteria. And for me, that thing was like, how, how that happens? Like how such a small little cell can do such a dis gigantic disaster in the human body or something. I just wanted to understand how a microbial cell will do that, which actually I got like crazy about like how, how this works. Because for me, I never, 13 years old, I knew about bacteria. And you know, usually bacteria when you're sick, but not, not like how, how really they work as a cell. And that for me was like, how such a small little thing can kill someone? Like, that's it, like how that works. And then for me, by that was just kind of a trigger for, okay, I need to know that. And, and that drove I, you through a long career in academia. For my next 25 years, yeah. but my 20, 22 years, yeah. So until from my 13, so I pretty much planned that I wanted to study that. But then extremophiles got later in my life. Like I wanted to learn about microbial life and how bacteria cells work then i went to biology and then in biology and microbiology i learned about extra uh, um, environmental microbiology that i also never heard about like how important bacterial cells are in the environment uh recycling of the the all the elements and everything and then i learned about extremophiles how did that happen um in one of the lectures, one of my my classes that I had is at a university. Uh, what was actually was uh, the title was uh, that diversity of bacteria, bacterial diversity, something like that. And one of the groups were like extremophiles, and then I learned about them. I was like, whoa, how, 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 how. <laughs> and <laughs> then like, um, uh, question marks. Exactly. <laughs> And then was, but the major one that actually got my attention was the hypothermophiles, like, uh, which was the first ones that we actually discovered the, on the Yellowstone National Parks. That was the place that we actually, the first time that we discovered in the 80s, the, and was like not so long ago, uh, archaeal cells, which is another group of uh, microbes, but they were the extremophiles. And at that time, we thought that extremophiles will be just related to this group of archaeal cells, not bacterial cells. And now we know that it does not matter, it can be both of the groups. And uh, But then later on I started to learn about the other ones, and then when I learned about the psychrophile, which is psycho... Uh, the psychrophiles means uh, cold lovers, which are the ones that live below 15 Celsius, then I got like, that's the one. So I really wanted to know about that. And that's interesting because um, if I would describe you, I think uh, that would definitely be one of the keywords for you. A cold lover. Yeah, so, I, I, <laughs> totally. <laughs> that merges yeah, I perfectly. am a microbiologist. Yeah. <laughs> so, so yeah, I, I that, think that, you. that brought you en route to a very special place, that field of research. What was it? Yeah. What brought me? No, what oh, is that place? Oh, the place that actually I fall in love during my research was Antarctica. And that's also another story of my life because um, it's quite of interesting because also when I was a teenager, I never felt myself belonging anywhere in this world. Like 
I don't know the entire world. I've barely been to Europe or never been to Asia or any place else. Like, but uh, I I always thought that I was from another planet. So I wanted to work in NASA to be able to get out of planet Earth and be able to find my planet. This this is what my plans went up when I was maybe sixteen. <laughs> <laughs> That's amazing too. And then, uh, and then. Um, during my academic uh, life, like I, I learned about extremophiles and then about psychrophiles. And before I actually got in, passionate about Antarctica, I fell in love if about a, and the time was exobiology, is studying life out of the planet, out of Earth. But then in 91, NASA changed that terminology for astrobiology because the only place that we know life is on our planet. So we have to consider that. So astrobiology means like you just study the possibility of life in any kind of astrological or celestial body in the universe, period. Which I do believe exists. I don't believe that only, only our planet will have life. And then, so the jump was from bacterial to environmental microbiology to extremophiles to astrobiology and then psychrophiles in that area also, considering that cold environments are the most spread in the universe. So it's just going to be awesome. hot nearby a star. But most of this, the universe doesn't, it's, it's, it's em not empty, but doesn't have the stars. So yeah, it's very it's cold. cold yeah. It's cold. So by that, um, I started to get fascinated by psychrophiles and then that brought me down to Antarctica to study life in cold environments. And which, which is pretty amazing because when you dig a little bit into research of both Arctic and Antarctica and you see the research groups, then in most countries they are strongly connected to uh, research in outer space. So they're somehow yes. connected with space research. And for me, Antarctica was the first time that I actually understood why. Um, when you just research one of the projects you worked on, uh, Lake Vostok, is just one of th those examples where scientists try to understand how life on moons, yeah. which have like a uh, ice-covered ocean, um, could just um, exist. Yeah. And that it's not life as we, as, as like a general citizen would understand, just like an animal walking uh, around or a human being, but a microbiology life. Yeah. So what was your um, your first touching point in Antarctica? Where, where did you start your journey? In Antarctica, uh, was uh, well, the first journey was uh, still in environmental microbiology and I did start it in uh, King George Island with the Brazilian Antarctic program. And at that point we were kind of studying more, uh, well, also like I have to do an appearances here that every time you come to Antarctica, it's very rare that you're going to be focusing on just one single question because logistics is so expensive and everything is so hard to do, all the science is so hard to do that you just try to get as much as possible information of out of anything that you do. So we do Which a lot is, of... again, comparable to space um, space program exactly. when you have the astronauts going into exactly. uh, space and they're not doing just one question but they're researching a lot of yeah. projects yeah and it's just not like international collaborations or even like inside of one national program you have collaboration with other researchers too but in case of my specific point at that point was uh, my master's which was actually uh, understanding and um, studying the um, 
degradation of um, oil and a fuel, um, natural fuel on the on ocean waters or even on on the soil, to be able of um, we call it bioremediation, which means like the how the recover from oil spill, for example, is going to be the, the environment, and this is all done by microbes. So those are the ones that are actually going to break down the the oil to be able to recover the environment. So those were my first kind of studies on that area. But then from there, I started to also to study diversity in different um, ecosystems like uh, um, ice or uh, the sediment or uh, snow or glaciers or lakes or soil or whatever, all, all the all different environments for my master's. And then by that, later on, after I finished my master's in Brazil, I continued to work in the Brazilian Antarctic program and I I knew that I needed to to work the American Antarctic program because that was a, that's the one of the top ones. And by um, far the largest. The largest, the biggest yeah. and the top biggest and funding. Funding and NASA is also there, so exactly. I was still looking for that to happen. And um so I applied for a Fulbright scholarship in the United States. And that was my only bet. I was like, that has to happen. Otherwise, I don't know what I'm going to do to my life. Play, plant tomatoes. <laughs> Maybe <laughs> or something like that. But then, yeah, so I got it. And then um, then I went to to work in the really, like, the project that I really wanted to be very extreme environments, which one one of the lakes of the dry valleys, Lake Vida in the dry valleys. So. And I also had the opportunity in parallel to that to work with the Icy World, which was a NASA project that they were just starting in nine, nine, uh, 2011, I think they started. 11 or 12. 11, I think. So it actually was the first steps for doing all the research and the basics research to send all the, sh all the, the rovers or whatever, the submarines to Europa uh, one of the Jupiter's moons to explore um, that moon, that icy world. So, and that's going to happen in those are like years. two different uh, two projects. Two different projects, yeah. So you have one which is in a complete absurd environment for Antarctica because you have the dry valleys where you have barely ice, yeah, no precipitation, um, which is kind of unimaginable in a icy world like Antarctica. And the other one actually builds up on the extreme opposite and the complete ice environment and what kind of life is encapsulated underneath yeah. that icy environment. Yeah, yeah. So how are they are linked because of extreme worlds, of course, but how are those, are those programs somehow really um, linked no, as well? No, 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 no it was completely parallel. different They were ones. parallel programs, yeah. Actually, one my major one was the Dry Valley's Lake and that the, one, one, the other one, the NASA one that just helped and I, the same way that I got in, help with the part and get out. So it was not, not my major one, but I had the opportunity to. So just to, just to explain, cool. the dry valleys are close to uh, the McMurdo. Ross Ice, ice mm -hmm. Shelf, to mm -hmm. McMurdo Station, mm -hmm. which is on Ross Island. So it's uh, in Western Antarctica. East, East Antarctica. East, so it's, East on, Antarctica. it's on the border. It's, yeah, um, it's, it's, it's like the, East the eastern part of the ice yeah, shelf. Yeah. yeah, they call it Victoria Lands, yeah. that area over there. So you have the the Ross Island in front of the Ross Ice Shelf. 
and um, McMurdo Station is in that island right there. And then it, this is already East Antarctica, and then the Dry Valley is, is even further, uh, even further east. east and north, so northeast yeah. from McMurdo. So going that direction, yeah. So can you describe your first first uh, arrival in the Dry Valleys? Oh my gosh, that was crazy. Unbelievable, yeah. I, it's interesting to think about that because I don't really remember exactly my first view of that thing because it's, everything is just gigantic and you're like in a helicopter and then you're just seeing everything happening in front of you. And uh, it's crazy because you see so many of the pictures of that place in different books and uh, papers and all this stuff and then suddenly you're seeing everything in front of you and season is a is a frozen environment it does not change much so whatever the pictures that i saw in books that were taken like 10 years ago 20 years ago was exactly the same kind of shapes you know it's just like this kind of same pictures and um it's just amazing it's just unbelievable amazing and the only thing that i remember getting there and getting to the camping site I actually look at the camping site and then you have like the 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 dorms in one side and the lab in another side and the way that you set up also the camping site is actually if there is a storm or where the, the winds are coming from the major sources of the winds catabatic winds and then you build the camping site for whatever happens nothing goes on the on your sleeping uh tense because if something's going like it's a storm or something each one runs to your own dorm and you you, you keep yourself inside your 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 tent and you don't want to have anything being blown onto you exactly yeah. so those are the farthest away so catabatic winds are coming down the hill uh, just from inside fall, like, falling winds yeah yeah, yeah. Exactly. so it's it's nice to see like uh, the way that they set up of that but the first thing that i remember when i got inside was like right that's why <laughs> I just looked at the farthest one, the farthest ten, and it was like, that's mine, that's mine, I'm staying, I'm staying that one, that's mine. They just like run over there. This is what I remember that. But the dry valleys is like, they're, oh my, they're, they're so different from anything that I ever saw. And like, the only thing that I remember seeing similar to that was actually pictures from Mars, which actually the geology is so, looks like so much like alike of that. And, um... It has frozen lakes, like uh, top of the lakes are frozen. It has gigantic glaciers. It has all this kind of uh, the geology with different um, rocks, with different colors, a lot of iron. So a lot of the rocks are very red. And at the and same not time, only the, not only the, the rocks are red, there is uh, this uh, blood waterfall. The, the, the yes, yeah, the blood, coming, uh, yes, the blood the, falls the coming from the glacier, yeah, Taylor Glacier is yes. also because of the all the water with a lot of iron getting out of the glacier. We had a previous glacier. episode on this podcast um, just about that waterfall that yeah. coming out of the of the glacier, which is pretty amazing. Yeah. And now meeting you who has been there and has seen that yeah. with your own eyes, that's yeah. just even more amazing. That thing is that's crazy. Pretty, it is. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, yeah. And uh, another thing that fascinated me in the dry valleys was the sculpture of the rocks because the wind is so strong over there and the rocks also they you have places that you have dunes with so much sand on that thing that you can you're not allowed to step on that things like are there are protected areas but you, if you go around them if you step with your feet like you 
you just you just go in because it's so soft it's so soft uh, um, sand and this actually is blown by wind it's like quicksand yes kind of but it's dry yeah. yes exactly but that actually that sand with the wind actually scoops uh, makes the sculptures of the the rocks and those things are like amazing crazy I even took a picture that some someone that looked like a polar bear paw print I was looking like because there were like four little holes you know looked like a like a, of course it was not but like oh my god what is that it's just like <laughs> amazing it's a completely different completely different environment it's just it's another planet in our planet it's another world in our planet and there's sure. so many different planets on our planet when you then just come from the dry valleys to an environment like like Vostok which yes. is completely is, different yeah Vostok is another crazy thing that you're still trying to figure out what is going on over there so we do know there's a liquid water lake under almost 4,000 meters of ice. And it's a huge lake. It's the size of Lake uh, Ontario. Ontario, yeah. And it's, yeah. And it, it's full fill of microbial life. And, how and surprisingly lots of species which were unknown before yeah, yeah. the research started there. Yeah, yeah. And this is, as a uh, microbiologist, we are we are used to see a lot of species that you don't know anything about them yet because we just know about the species when you're able to culture them in the lab and study them. So we know how how they behave, what they eat, what they like, what, what they don't like. But then uh, most of the studies that we do uh, today is based on DNA codes, RNA codes and protein codes. So we pretty much get your samples and you extract every biological molecule as RNA, DNA or protein from that sample, the pool of sample. And using kind of biological markers, you're able to organize this as a puzzle so you can actually identify who is there. But a huge group of that, you don't, you don't have a clue who they are or what they are because you can relate them to similar groups as, as a phylogeny, like a, as a similarity of the DNA like uh, species related, let's go like taxonomically related, but uh, you don't really know exactly what they do in that environment. And Lake Vostok for other studies of other groups that already did a lot of study on the lake, they do believe that there is a kind of a thermal source under, on the under bedrock. bedrock. That like, a, like a geothermal. Exactly, that provides energy for the system. So the lake is not freezing. It's not or, freezing, yeah. But, but the, um, the lake is not only freezing because of uh, a possible mm -hmm. geothermal um, source, it's also because of the pressure, the pressure of the ice. Exactly, exactly. We have this, um, yeah. uh, the basal effect, the basal yeah. melting point. But you do have to have some kind of sources energy from the rocks. Yeah. And then if you have a source of, of heat, that helps. And then you have a, th a third factor, which is the salinity in the water is extremely high as well. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So that also sets the melting, uh, the freezing point up. Yes. Down. Yeah, huh? it has to be colder. Colder, yes, yeah. To be yeah. frozen, yeah. It has to be colder to be frozen. So yeah, down. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Higher number, but negative. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> it makes sense, yeah, yeah. So, yeah. So, but they do know that. that they, they never saw it by, by modeling or by studying. I don't know, the, the ice and the bedrock and all these kind of uh, reactions that happen there, they do know that that happens. 
and um, I think they're going to be trying to enter that lake soon. I don't believe that they're going to be Russians that are going to do that. I do believe that Americans are going to start to drill. Enter by um, r remote controlled um, vehicles or? Mm, also sending because it's something that we developing that is interesting also because by like our humanity curiosity of trying to know things that we don't know and we just want to sometimes just learn about that because we just want to answer a question. But we also developed the technology for answering that. So today what we do, first time that we do, when you dig a hole, for sure, first thing you have to preserve everything and make sure that you contaminate, you don't contaminate anything that comes into the hole. But the first thing that you want to do is look at it. Seeing it so with you your own eyes. A, exactly. Yeah. The first thing that you do is send a camera down. <laughs> Before collecting any kind of sample, you send the camera down. And but that and might contam contaminate uh, the, the samples already. No, because we cl we clear everything. Whatever you send inside a hole, it's chemically sterilized. So it's uh, you don't have to have you cannot have any organic molecule on any kind of things that goes inside a camera, a cable, uh, a tube, anything. And that can be done even by like UV light, so radiation, so it the, the break down the organic material and also by chemical, very strong chemicals that degrades the material right there. And how comes something interesting in place, if I understood it correctly, the first time ever when the Russians drilled down to Lake Vostok to actually reach the lake, they drilled a hole in a very old-fashioned system where they used kerosene to um, yeah. prevent the hole from freezing over. Yeah. And that kerosene that actually contaminated uh, the very first samples. Yeah. It, uh, it did, yeah. How does this kerosene affect the whole environment in the lake? Is there a chance it, that it contaminates no, the it, whole lake? It did or? not contaminate the lake because it does it does not reach the lake. It is kind of a uh, first like when the water when they actually also reach the lake, the water actually bounces back up, and then this because actually, of the pressure exactly because of the pressure. But the kerosene is actually something that uh, it probably stills like around the the walls of, because they they always suck it out they take it away but you still have a a, a layer of that some kind of a the film of that thing on the on the borehole and but how much contamination was when they actually collect the sample i don't really know uh but it, it is evident yeah we do have the evidence of the contamination of that but if that contamination reached the lake? I don't think so. I don't think so. The lake probably bounced it back up and someone also asked me about like okay even usually when you reach these lakes they they don't have oxygen at all. They are absence of oxygen. So oxygen is not something that is used uh, in the respiration system for the bio uh, biological life that is used that. But at the same time, at the time that you make the borehole, it's not going to be this 50 centimeters diameter borehole that is going to contaminate entire lake with oxygen or something. You're going to have interactions in the first layer of the water with the oxygen, but that's just, not a, just locally. It's local, area. exactly. That's not going to is not going to affect affect the rest of the system. So that's not going to be a, an issue like that, for example. And after that, like there was a point in your life when you decided after you finished your PhD, you reached your goal in life, you reach what you aimed for, and you decided to 
leave academia? Why was that? That's a good question, Henry. Is um, well, I was for for eighteen years doing the same thing, and uh, not that I knew everything, and I don't know, I don't know nothing. Like, there's so much to learn still in my life. But what I actually felt first was a uh, what I was even like changing countries or changing universities, things that I was observing is actually we produce a lot of knowledge inside the academic world and a lot of this doesn't get out and just stays in there. Even for us, as inside the academic world, we have a hard time to find the information. Like, it's just, if I you don't pay for it, about. you don't reach it. <laughs> exactly. It's even harder for people who are not part of academia but try to understand that. Exactly. So... Um, and also was like my entire life, like a not entire life, but a lot of my life doing the same thing. And um, something that actually I started to not kind of like much anymore is uh, with the development also of the technology. A lot of things are now computer related. And so it's more work in front of a computer than on the field. Exactly. So we go to the field, we collect your samples, and then five percent of that time is you're you're collecting and being able to do your microbiological like being a microbiologist and then later on you are more like a molecular biologist or even a bioinformatics which means like as soon as you have your data you expand the rest of your research in front of a computer doing writing analysis and, doing yeah. analysis writing building graphs this is part of that i'm not saying that that this is part of it sure. but for me that was not fun anymore and I was feeling a lot, uh, uh, I was missing a lot uh, being outside and also being able to be exchanging knowledge. This is something also that I, I started to see that was too much for me, like being too much time in the lab or even in front of a computer. I finished my PhD like 14 hours a day, 12 to 14 hours in front of a computer. I was either, either writing a paper or writing a proposal or analyzing data or writing emails or like but that computer was my life and that was like that that's not my life that's that's kind of killing me that was a feeling this is one of the major points and another one was really like the the feeling of need to be in antarctica as much as possible of my life like timing considering and um then i just decided that if i really want to continue as a researcher that will not be possible because as soon as you are linked to a university you have the responsibility responsibility with the proposals with grants with lectures being a professor and that was not uh, the way that I wanted to to keep going with my life so for and, me and it took a decision I took a decision to leave after finished uh, I did not even finish the proposal for the doctorate I left it in the middle uh, but um then I got out and uh, I started to apply for any kind of job that could keep me as much as possible down in Antarctica. What which kind was, of jobs have that been? Oh, was uh, guiding Port Lacroix, apply for the Port Lacroix position, um, McMurdy Station for the. They have a position for science management or something like that. The the, the the person that received the, the researchers 
and organize them in the Query Lab, which is the big lab in McMurdo. So we just provide them everything that they need and all this stuff and, and go to fill with them if they need. Um, uh, Polar Stern. Polar Stern, yeah. Polar Stern, yeah, as a research uh, position also in the Polar Stern. Which is the, the German uh, uh, icebreaker. Yeah, the German icebreaker. Which um, is now frozen into the Arctic Ocean for a year following in the footsteps of Nansen. It started in September last year, frozen into the Arctic, and it's now drifting with the transarctic drift towards the North Pole. And they try to reach Spitsbergen, Svalbard, around September next year, uh, no, this year, 2020, and uh, hope that they finish what Nansen didn't um, accomplish, reaching the North Pole through the uh, through a drift, but mainly using it as a hub for research. So actually using that for the scientists as a base, and from the polar stern they're actually going onto the ice and just doing research all around, which is a pretty amazing That's project. Awesome. It's yeah. it's the biggest research project in the Arctic ever. Uh, just it gives me goosebumps yeah. every time I, I talk about that. Yeah, it's pretty amazing. That's amazing. I didn't know that. Yeah, That's yeah, cool. that thing will be awesome to step on that thing. That yeah, that maybe could be some. Yeah, and then I start, uh, but I, I was for two years applying for that kind of jobs. And um, at the same time in my career, even uh, doing the research, when I was in Brazil, I always worked in uh, outdoor research and environmental education. So um, I was kind of a guide a lot when I could and get out with uh, most of uh, high school and undergrad students, uh, high school students and uh, undergrad school students. And uh, so I kept doing that until I got... Uh, a job of guiding uh, with Quark in Antarctica, and um, then I met Henry. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that was pretty amazing. My yeah, really <laughs> yeah. no, enjoyed that. Yeah. So and now you're a guide, and um, whenever possible, you're down here in Antarctica. Yeah, yeah. Now I'm a guide, and uh, I, I, I think that that's the job really that I should get because because gives me the opportunity for not just being a guide but I also give the and it's just one lecture but I give the lectures on board and be able to share what I know and also what actually I like a lot is also seeing uh, seeing people's not everybody but people changing during the voyage like how Antarctica changed people changes people's life and it's not only the place Antarctica it's also um, part of, of our job to to open their eyes on yes. location because yeah. what what your background is is looking for the tiniest evidence for life and just raising that curiosity that drove you into that yeah. studies in their life probably not in that um, capacity that brought you into studies but in a similar way that they actually understand that even though everything is surrounded by ice, there is life yeah. in, in every landing site we're going yeah. to. And uh, that's pretty amazing when you see when, when this kind of aha effect is there. Yeah. Ah, oh, okay, makes yeah. sense. Yeah. Yeah. And this is something that I, I, I think I have an urge to, urge to say, to tell, to tell to people like, hey, we cannot see it, but it's there. It's, it is there. And uh, it's, as I, I, you said something in the beginning, like life, and I, I always say that in my lectures, like life, uh, life as we know it. Like most of people don't even think about microbial cells or whatever that thing will be. Like we just know about 
us human beings or mammals or birds or whatever we can see or eat or plant or you know is our day by day but we don't really think about things that exist and um, this is something that I love to bring to people like the possibility of them to maybe sometimes not understand but learn that that exists so and know that in, even in that kind of environment that looks like completely inhabitable there is life existing over there. There is a type of life that can is able to thrive. It's not just even thrive, but they need to have this kind of environment to be alive. Yeah. Is that the way that they work? Which closes kind of a circle because it drove you, brought you to that um, to that crazy place, and now it enables you to to share that curiosity with people who are not part of that academia world. Yeah. Yes. So that's, that's and be probably, able to show them, yeah, yeah. to show them uh, and show and also learn from them because it's so cool to have the possibility of sh sharing this knowledge from people from all over the world and sometimes they come with questions. You never thought about I never thought about that exactly. and that was like, wow, that's a f cool question. <laughs> Beep. Beep, cool, super cool question, like I never thought about that thing. And that's uh yeah and especially having different cultures and even like people that come down to antarctica each person have has their own aim in and why they came down there to to visit or to be there or to see something or even whoever works in antarctica each one has their own engine for what they want out of that or why they want that job or why they have to be there or why they have to do that so with the, with the job we're doing we're kind of a little bit stuck in a certain area of antarctica which is mainly the peninsula are you sometimes regretting um not going any further any deeper in or do you have any plans um, of joining some other projects to, to go back deeper into uh, into the ice. Yeah, yeah. I it's, it's not a regret. Like I, Peninsula is the place that you're gonna see everything happening. Is where the wildlife is. Is where you're gonna see the dynamic of the environment happening with the winter, with the summer, the snow, the ice, uh, migrate migrations and birds and. Plant life blossoming during summer. The, yes, I, I couldn't imagine that. Yes, plant life and quite some intense green right now. Colors, yeah, yeah, the colors exactly. But I do get myself a lot, uh, a lot of time thinking about, it, especially when I go back and see my pictures from McMurdo and um, the dry valleys, or I see a, a video or something about that. That I still have a and aim to go to the South Pole and um, I wish yeah but I don't know if that's gonna happen uh, because also we do know that like at the academic world is very competitive it's very hard even if you are in there inside there you have to keep your standards but at the time that you decide to get out of that to come back you your way down the level let's go for that because you have to keep your publications you have to keep your level of of production 
to be able to compete back for these kind of positions of a researcher. But maybe another position, I don't know, South Pole? South Pole would be the place that I would like to go. I've been to near inside Antarctica in the latitude 79, which is um, environmentally is exactly like the same as the South Pole. Like you have the plateau, you have like, it's going to be white, 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 and blue, <laughs> blue and white. Those are the two colors that you have there, plus your, your whatever your gear you have with you. But uh, just by the technology and the day by day and how the station runs. So that that's something that I really like to to experience if I could in my life still. I'm pretty sure you will. Yeah, yeah. Let's see. Yeah, I need to work on that. <laughs> it takes some time to work on that to happen. Yeah, yeah. But Antarctica is a is a planet inside our planet. So it's, I used to say that to people. Also, people thinking going to Mars, like me, going out of the planet, and I always tell them like maybe you want to go first over there and check that place because then you can have a can have already a feeling of how it's gonna be going out of space because that's just as it's hard to describe if you don't come and see it and feel it is you can read in books you can try to describe it with words but it's not gonna make it uh, the way that it really is is not well, uh, thanks, Emma. That was an um, amazing um, yeah, life story. It's just just really inspiring to to uh, listen to um, what a, how dedicated a human being can be about spending time in Antarctica. And um, it's mind blowing. Yeah, it is, and it's really amazing to see um, how passionate the um, the people in our environment we're working with um, are how much of the passion they involve into their job to share it and to hear where that passion comes from is just um just an, yeah just amazing ah so let's hope you'll find some more of, of of this caliber some more guests for the show of this caliber you are much closer to this uh, as i am right now so thank you so much henry for uh, for talking to her that was great it's a pleasure. It's, uh, it's really a pleasure also to work with those um, people. It's just really great. It's a nice environment. Yeah. So let's leave it at this for this episode. Um, as usual, you can find us online at curiouslypolar.com. That's where we have all the other 89 episodes of this podcast. Also, we're on Twitter at curiouslypolar and on Instagram at curiouslypolar. And uh, with that, until next week. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.